This is the Radio Check Podcast, life in the concert touring industry. Good afternoon, Brother Chris. How's it going, man? Uh, you know, <laughs> what do I always say? You know, I'm, I'm, I guess I I'm know, okay. I know. You know, what just, do I always say? I got to, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're, in week, we're in week 70 or month 70 of this pandemic and I don't know. Uh, I, 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 I go into these podcasts thinking, okay, I'm going to say something really poignant and some, you know, something current and something civically important. And I never come up with anything. Nope. I always just come up with, Hey, I'm good. You know, not too bad. <laughs> well, I lead you into that by me just saying, Hey brother, Chris, how's it going? You know, I mean, you know, it's, it's, I'm good. I'm good. No, boring. no, things, things should, are great. Offline we'll practice this more. So, but I'm super good. Good, good. Excellent. Excellent. And I know the, you know, the, the business is picking back up. It's great seeing like the chatter going on, on like, you know, various platforms and people getting back to work and, yeah. you know, um, it, it's really exciting. And, you know, to be honest with you with today's podcast, I'm like going, wow, how are we figuring this out? I figured, you know, everybody would be cranking right along and it might be hard to nail down guests, especially these guests. So um, all I'm going to say before we jump into this is that Back in 1983, 84, and maybe one of them can correct me, my very first live stadium concert was with this band. Or, you know, of course, you know, we don't have the band members here, but in general. And I probably have seen this band live more than any other band, I think, except for maybe Megadeth, just throwing it out there. But Good super stoked, super stoked. So loving this. Um, anyway, so Chris, I know that you've been working on this for a little while and you put it together and this is going to be, well, in my book, it's going to be epic already. So yeah, yeah we're, 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 this is, this is a radio check reprise. Uh, we're having some guys on here for the second time. Um, and these two guys um, uh, are some of the more popular podcasts that, I've, that we have. I mean, these guys are combined for, you know, well over a thousand downloads between the two of them, you know, I mean, this is, these guys are doing really, really well for us. But anyway, today is all about Rush. Now, this is not going to be a nerdy Rush podcast. This is yes, going is. to be a, a, you know, a friendly roadie centric uh, stories of, of, of Rush. So, hey, so we've got, you know, okay, we've got Howard Ungeleiter, longtime lighting director and tour manager, and Mr. Robert Scoville, longtime front of house sound engineer. Welcome back to the podcast, fellas. Hey, it's great being here. CK, MK, always good to see you both. Fantastic. <laughs> you were more excited to be on the first time, Robert, I could tell already. Well, you know, I hadn't seen you or talked to you in 10 years. You know, now, I, you know, I've, I've got my fill now. I, I, we're back to normal, Chris. Oh, you know, okay, so I can good. just be... I can be calm and charming around you now. That's so. fantastic. Well, you know, thanks guys for coming on. Cause yeah, I, 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 you know, I wanted to talk about rush with you guys. And I know in our podcast together, we did touch upon rush and we, we hit it pretty hard, but listening to the dynamic between you two guys who stood next to each other at the front of house for the better part of a decade, uh, working for this incredible band together. Um, there's just bound to be some shit that's going to come out. You know, and, uh, <laughs> you think, and then here I am, here I am st standing here getting ready to receive the shit, uh, along with Matt. So, uh, yeah. Do you guys feel like talking about Rush? This is cool. It's my life. Chris. 
I, I, I was there for 45 years. So oh, I know. It's only a small portion of my life that I didn't work with Rush. Yeah. You know? That's true. That's you true. Think about it. You know? Um, I was just just 22 when I started working with Rush. Right? Just as I, said, as I said in the last podcast, and, uh, you know, the rest was pretty much... I didn't know how long I was going to be there, right. especially with, with all the trouble I got into. You know, I, uh, and then the, I figured if I was in that much trouble, I might as well have a friend to bring into the trouble as well. And slowly <laughs> got sucked in, you know. So. Hey, so, so back then, this was uh, you know early days. Their first record, they were signed in Canada. They started what they were opening up for Uriah Heep or something in the United States. So who hired you? Was it Mercury Records or who, who brought you in? So it was interesting because I was an agent for American Talent International. Right, right. You were saying. I would tell you that Jeff Franklin, Ira Blacker, and Saul Safian were the owners of that agency. It was a big agency in, in New York. And they basically gave me two choices. Like either you go to Toronto and work for this band, Rush, and make sure they like us and look after our better interests. I said, well, we're what? Gotcha. Because, well, you're fired. It's your choice. You take it. So <laughs> I was on the next flight up to Canada. I find it interesting that, you know, Cliff Bernstein, we all know from, from uh, Q Prime, was, was an integral part of, uh, of, of, of Rush getting signed and, and making yeah. their way through the industry. And, and interestingly enough, Cliff Bernstein has played an integral role in both of your lives too, as, 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 as a manager uh, with, with Q Prime. Yeah, in many ways. So. Yeah. In many ways, yeah. And, um, you know, Donna Halper, you have to give her credit because she was on WMMS in Cleveland. And that was the station that broke Rush. That once she broke Rush is when Cliff, who was, A&R at Mercury Records in Chicago at the time took interest and said, uh, I'm going to sign these guys. You better sign. Right. He's one of the smartest guys I've ever worked for. You know, he's, he's clever in so many different ways. You know, I mean, he's a partner with, uh, with Peter Mensch at Q prime. And we all know Peter Mensch is. Another trouble. Yeah. His strengths, (laughs) Cliff Bernstein's strengths are completely different. You know, he's, he's, he's that really clever guy that knows how to make the band an extra million dollars through tax loopholes and and, and crazy things like that. I mean, those two guys are the sum of the parts. No, no doubt about it. I mean, I mean, Cliff's insight, I mean, at some point you got to stop saying lucky. He's not lucky, man. You can't be lucky that many times in a row. I mean, he gets it, you know, he totally gets it. Totally. Totally. So Howard, you, you obviously, you, started off as tour manager, you went and became the lighting director. And, uh, you know, very soon after that, uh, you Maitre know, D. You, you were, you, <laughs> Maitre D. So you really, that out. That's also <laughs> was a very integral part of my job. Oh, funny. And then, so you were what you ran with Rush for, you know, several years and then, uh, come late eighties, late eighties, uh, Mr. Scoville gets introduced to the party. Tell me about how you got in there, Robert. Well, I, I mean, it kind of was the path that we were just talking about through mentioned Bernstein, you know, because uh, I'm, I'm sure Howard probably remembers this day. Uh, you know, I was doing Def Leppard, although Howard was involved with the Def Leppard thing. So, you know, he and I kind of got to kick up the same dust there for a, 
a period of time on hysteria because he was doing I, I think you were doing all the were you doing all the moving light programming on that show or I, I, I don't remember your role, okay. Howard, but I remember you well, being there here, all the time. Well, I want to, there was a discrepancy here, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of years. Because Faye McMahon had done, you know, was continually doing Def Leppard. And I love Faye. And um, he was out with George Michael, doing a George Michael tour. And he wasn't available to do Def Leppard or design it. Although he did have some lighting fixtures called the Bucket Lights that he right. wanted to include in the system. So Peter Mensch phoned me one day and said, hey, Howard, uh, Faye's not available. Can you design this Def Leppard hysteria tour? It's going to be in the round. And, uh, you know, I'll leave it up to you. You do what you want. And, you know, we really would appreciate it. So I proceeded to fly to Holland and yeah. that where Def Leppard was recording in Hilverson studio and uh, started to drink <laughs> crazy amounts of screwdriver. Yes, the soup. Yes. Yeah. So I, I was drinking so many screwdrivers that at one point I had to go to the washroom and look at myself in the mirror and just confirm that. <laughs> Are you really doing this with these guys? <laughs> it was like I was questioning like what was happening because I was so endlessly hammered in that studio. Anyway, I got to meet the band, and you know, I was told that you know Robert is gonna be our sound engineer, and it was all great, you know. And uh I I did design the show, I did come up with um the in the round um trussing configuration with all of the lights with the exception of these bucket lights that, you know, I had to speak with Faye and Faye told me where he wanted them in the rig after I sent the plot. But the plot was actually created by myself, drawn by Nick Kodos. And um, we had Matt Drusbick in there. Yeah. As, um, he was our, you know, moving light and my assistant. And I met Robert Scoville and uh, Charlie Hernandez who was the production manager. And we all went to Glen Falls, New York for a wild time to try to figure out how this PA would work in the round. And that's when Robert did such an amazing job on that show. And we sort of bonded over some ridiculously hot sweltering chili peppers that I had found. And uh, screwdriver chasers. Screwdriver chasers, chili peppers. And... Um, Really, that's the, right. I remember the peppers now. Oh my god, I think that was my first introduction to the ghost pepper, if I remember right. Do you remember was, that? I do. Oh my so, gosh, sweltering. You were taking bets backstage with Charlie Hernandez. Um, you know, if you could eat one of these peppers and swallow it, you know, put the money down on it, right? And that's what was going on backstage. But the ridiculous Dude, if you're drunk enough on screwdrivers, I mean, you'll eat anything, it doesn't matter. Literally, I didn't take the screwdrivers to Glenville. I was serious. There was no drinking there. Uh, yes, there was. And it was screwdrivers. I don't mind telling you. Well, I don't remember that part. <laughs> was I involved? Hence the screwdrivers. Dude, I mean, that was the breakfast of champions on the attack bus. I mean, you woke up every morning and had screwdrivers for breakfast. I mean, that was that was the meal. So Awesome. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so, that, so that's to set the record straight. Yes, I did design 
hysteria in the round. And um, then it went on tour. And um, then Fee came back and finished it with uh, Richard Owens, I believe. Right. So that was your introduction to each other. It was. Yeah, it was. It was. And I, uh, I'm not going to lie to you. That was a big deal for me. Um, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I've said this before and I'll say it again. You know, I mean, I was a huge Rush fan. I mean, I, I mean, I saw every tour that they did up until the time I went to work for them. Wow. So even to be hanging around with Howard Unkerleiter, that was a big deal. I mean, I knew that name from all the records, you know, I'd seen it posted on all the albums. So now, you know, I was kind of, I was in rarefied era there. I was like, okay, this is, this is cool stuff, you know? So I was, yeah, I was very enamored with, with you, Howard. <laughs> <at the time>. <laughs> <laughs> of course it could have just been the screwdrivers. I don't know. I, you know. <clears throat> but no, it, that was a big deal for me to get to meet Howard and hang with you a little bit there, man. That was, that was heady times, heady times for me. So did the two of you go from hysteria straight to presto? Is that, is that, uh, is that how the chronology goes? Well, I mean, I, I was going to say, I, you know, what kind of sealed the deal uh, was we were on hysteria and we were doing a show up in Toronto at old CNE stadium. You remember this show, Howard? It had the big rolling, huge rolling stage. I mean, yeah, the old, the old baseball field. Right. And the Blue Jays were playing there. And uh, I mean, there's, I, I remember so many things about this day. Uh, and I mean, I the, the concept of doing Rush, even though I'd been hanging around Howard, I mean, it wasn't even in my windshield. I mean, I, there was no way I was even contemplating that kind of move. Uh, but on the day, uh, Peter came up to me, Mitch comes to me and he goes, Ged's coming down tonight. He wants to hear you mix. He wants to see if you might be able to do the tour. And of course I went into a, you know, a complete haze thinking, Oh my gosh, I, I might have a chance at mixing rush here. Are you kidding me? So <laughs> as the story goes, the baseball game of course goes into extra innings. They had kind of a, a false fence pulled up around the, the outfield. And after the game, the stage rolled into place and you do the show. You did a so, show the night after a baseball game. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the game wow. was during the day, and you know we for you know you figure okay, well it's going to be a tight day because you could completely set up that stage, meaning hanging PA, everything and the entire thing would roll wow into place, you know. So we're thinking, okay, well game's over, we'll have a couple hours to sound check, get things together, etc. Game goes into extra innings, goes like 14, 15 innings, <laughs> right? So fence comes down, and I mean it's literally roll it over, plug it in and let the people in. I mean, that's how it's going to go. So here I am, you know, I'm thinking, Oh, this is fucked. You know, here is, I'm going to, I'm one of the biggest auditions in my life here in front of Ged. Well, no, sound check, a, no, nothing, you know, Getty's a big baseball fan. Was he, oh, yeah, extra, totally. was he at so, the extra innings game as well? Oh, I'm sure he, he was. Did he go from the game straight to Def Leppard? Positive. Positive. Oh, he probably walked out of the stands right down onto the front of house riser, you know? So he's standing by behind me the whole night, you know, I mean, it was very, it was nerve wracking to say the least, but. Uh, did you, did you converse with him? Yeah. 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 It, it all turned out in a really, I mean, a really nice way when it was all said and done. It was great. We, we, we connected pretty good that night. So I, you know, I, I walked away from there thinking, well, I don't know, maybe. You know? Was well, is, is Getty the guy when it comes to that kind of thing? Okay. We need a new front house sound engineer. Would, would, would Getty be that guy? He's the one that, that seeks that out. Yeah, Getty yeah. makes most of the business decisions, and and what Robert doesn't know is before before the interview went down, I I was speaking with Ged because he was very unhappy with the sound that 
he was getting throughout, you know, a lot of the years. And, you know, were some people that were great and some people that weren't so great. And when Robert came in, he came in, to, you know, in the time period when Ged wasn't really happy with the sound of Rush. And I was very happy with what I heard Robert do with Def Leppard. So before Mensch got a hold of Ged, he was sort of picking my brain about what I thought. So I was hyping Robert a lot to Ged prior to this, because I really wanted Robert to get in there. I, I think I even mentioned to you, Robert, you remember, I said, listen, let me work on it. I'll see what I can do. And, uh, and I did for a well, little bit. This is bit. nice because now I know where to send the checks. I, I was never yeah, well, really sure know, where to send the checks. I was wondering when they would even arrive. <clears throat> right, right. Anyway, well, you, you should still wonder about how much they're going to be because that's still <laughs> up in the air. So. <laughs> so anyway, so it sort of set the tone because I really wanted Robert there. Because, you know, we had gotten along well. Yeah. I knew he was really, really overconfident of what he you know, could do. And uh, especially after what Rush had been through. And um, he was there. Next thing you know. It was, it was surreal for me, Howard. I got to tell you. I, cool. I mean, I, I, maybe I didn't let it on at the time, but I mean, that was... That was surreal for me. I, I mean, I've kind of positioned it that way over the years. I, I was the Rush fan that got to mix the show. I mean, I was that guy. Wow. I mean, because, and, it, you know, it felt like, um, I mean, it may have been self-deluding at the time, but it just felt like such a natural fit when I walked through the door the first time, especially the first time I sat down at the console in rehearsals up in Toronto and started mixing it. I was like, I know every inch of these songs before they even start playing them. I, I mean, I just was so immersed in that music for so long, you know. Wow. But, you know, let, let's, let's go back to the comment, Robert, you mentioned earlier that you had seen Howard's name on all the records. And, and, and I, I want to talk about that because yeah. Rush from almost the very beginning have always listed their crew on their record sleeves. Indeed. They and, have. And, and that's a rarity. And sometimes photographs as well. Yeah. Uh, and, and I've always appreciated that. You know, I, bands don't do that. Every once in a while, they'll, they'll make a mention of maybe somebody who was in the studio with them. But to continuously give praise and thanks to their touring crew, you know, it was mainly, you know, it was you know, always Howard Hearns, Ungerleiter. <laughs> you know, and there was Skip Gildersleeve and, of yeah. course, Liam Burt and, and Mike Hirsch. But everybody had a nickname. Everybody <laughs> had a nickname. <laughs> what is starting with you, Howard? What, what, what was what did where did Hearns come from? Who is the who is the giver of nicknames? <laughs> well, the giver of nick, nicknames just happened. In my case, um, it was Brian Auger. You remember Brian Auger? Oh, the keyboard, oh, yeah, player. of course, the famous jazz keyboard. I was his tour manager. The Oblivion um, Express. That's the tour I did with Brian Auger, and um, I was a tour manager on that, and. Uh, Brian was the best, funniest man, as well as the most ridiculous B3 player I've ever seen. He actually taught Keith Emerson how to play B3. And wow. uh, that's saying something. I've it, heard it, that story, actually. Yeah. It was very, yeah, it was very crazy. And Brian, you know, to this day, I still keep in contact with him and his son, Karma. But um, Brian watched this TV show. It was called The Goon Show, that it was on in England. Right? And there was a character in the Goon Show who would bark out orders with Sergeant Hearns. 
And for the longest time, Brian Auger could not remember anyone on the crew's name, so he would call everybody Hearns, after Sergeant Hearns, but especially me. I was the tour manager, and I was always yelling at people for not to, like, you idiot, what are you And he would come over, and he would go, Hearns, like that. So after Brian Auger's tour ended, and I went to do Rush, it was, that was the next tour I was being sent to do. Believe it or not, one day, Brian Auger had to open for Rush, which was the most outlandish combination of talent on a stage. But I guess when it's no different than Woody Herman opening up for Led Zeppelin, I guess. But, uh, you know, he popped his head into Rush's dressing room while I was standing there and went, Hearns, how are you doing? And like, and then the guys in Rush all turned around and said, what did he just call you? <laughs> and then it never, you know, it's crazy. You know, a lot of us have like multiple nicknames, but right. Hearns one stuck around for quite a while. So were you Hearns? It is the best. It is excellent. To Getty and then Alex to this day, are you Hearns? Yeah. How funny. I am. How funny. Well, going, well, going back to the record sleeves, I remember, I remember reading, it would say, you know, Howard Hearns, Unger Leiter. And then it would say uh, Skip Slider, Gildersleeve. And yeah, then yeah. Liam, what was Liam Burt's? Liam was something. What was Liam Burt's nickname? Oh, well, Liam was... Uh, Alex's tech at the time, I guess. I don't even remember what his nickname was. I, I'm trying to think of it. I can't remember it either. LB is what they called him because of his yeah. initials. But what, what I'm getting to is right after that, it would say Major Ian Grundy, front <laughs> house engineer and center stage technician. <laughs> that was the early days. So, <laughs> so we would mix for the house and set up the drums. So, you know, did, did they, did you, did they surprise you with that Scoby when you walk in and did you, did they say, Oh yeah, by the way, you've got to set up the drums. Too. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank goodness. No, that was the amazing Shrav. He was, uh, he was the drum technician. And it was a decade was... afterwards. When Scoby... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, he basically got the, you know, the white club treatment when he was there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was pretty awesome. I, I mean, not to sound all gushy about it, even though I'm going to sound gushy about it, <clears throat> man. I mean, once I got that gig and, and had that realization that my name was going to be hanging on one of those albums next to those next to Gildersleeve and Ungerleiter. I mean, I, it, it just felt like you arrived. It was just like, okay, I, things are going to go really good from here, you know, frozen. So you guys were, Front of house, I mean, obviously, Robert, you'd sit up in front, and then Howard, would you sit up behind him or to the side of him? Yeah, I was always on the floor, so yeah, he, Howard, Howard needed to be up, you know, I mean, he's... Did you guys ever fight over space at the front of house? Not really, not that I remember. I remember ever, yeah. No, no. Who, who used to, uh, who used to have more guests at the front of house? Howard or... Um... <laughs> well, I mean... Look, I mean, it, the, the amount of guests at the restaurant house was always pretty impressive. And it was always a pretty heady crowd, as, at least in my period there, because, you know, of Ged's association with baseball. I mean, it was not uncommon to have an entire baseball team standing out there for a show. You know, I, I, re I remember one night in particular, I think we were in Cincinnati. Maybe I can't remember exactly where we were. Or maybe this was when we were in Tampa, when they were holding the baseball meetings down there. I, I can't remember which one it was. But I remember Rob Dibble 
standing at the front of house, Cincinnati Reds pitcher, right? Big bruising guy. And we, you know, we had put a cooler of beer out there. I mean, it was like probably a full case of beer sitting in the cooler. And before we had gotten halfway through the set, that cooler was gone. And Rob Dibble was demanding more beer. <laughs> I was like, are you kidding me right now? So do you, were you getting taps on the shoulder from Rob oh, Dibble oh, while totally. you're mixing the yeah. <laughs> Hey, can you call him up and get us some more beers out here? Yeah, I, without question, you know. Do you remember how he used to uh, tear the sleeve? Oh, yeah. He used to yeah. tear his sleeve because yeah. when he pitched, he needed he needed more ro- rotary. Yeah, whatever, dude. <laughs> whatever, Alpha. He his sleeve open. <laughs> did he have a ripped sleeve that night? I didn't see it. Yeah, oh, if okay. he did, it wasn't intentional, I don't think. so. Uh, how funny. But I, baseball I knew, I knew players, Rob, they were a regular occurrence out there. Yeah, I, I knew Rob Dibble back in those days as well. He was a big Megadeth <laughs> fan, yeah. yeah. I gave him a Megadeth leather jacket, and he loved it. Right. I mean, Randy Johnson really started making his appearances toward the end of my tenure there. As he's you know, right, he, he and was, then he became a photographer. Yeah, big time. Yeah. While he was visiting us, we had Dave Steve out there as well. Dave Steve, you know, well, that was another one for Dave sure. Steve would come out, and I mean, it, it was ridiculous. I still have signed balls from the whole team. Yeah. You know, it's like it's, it was amazing. Like there were baseball players there were professional pga golfers coming out yeah. there yeah I, uh, golfers was the other one yeah we had tons of pga guys like immediate would be out there you know yeah. it's like it's crazy yeah because I, I mean we were golfing like crazy on that tour anyway so you know and of course alex you know mr social butterfly he would always hook up with the pga guys and they would nice. be coming out to i mean we got Did to you, go i mean we got to go play i mean we got to go play every u.s open golf course while we were on tour with those guys I mean, everywhere we went, we played all of the places. Yeah. I definitely had, I dug up a lot of those places with my driver. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were golfy. That was your second what? surname there. It was, that was my second nickname. That's right. Was who, that who was the better golfer? You two. Oh, Scully for sure. It was like, well, we were taking it very seriously at that point. Very, way too seriously, honestly. <laughs> driver. But, oh, I mean, me and Alex, I mean, it wasn't, I mean, there were days where, you know, if it was an easy load in day, he and I would go golfing and get in nine or 18 holes in the morning <laughs> before load in, wow. you know, I mean, we, I, I think I counted it up one year on, uh, across one tour. I think me and Alex played well over 150 rounds of golf Wow. on one tour. I mean, we were, I mean, there was days on days off, we go play 36 holes. I mean, it was, it was crazy. It was crazy. Then he's a good golfer. He didn't play. <laughs> What's that, Howard? He used to go out in the morning on gig days and go yeah, yeah. And come back and play. Yeah. I'm like, oh my God. Man, between yeah, Neil on you know, Neil on his bicycle going from city to city and Alex playing golf, they would show up at the gig at four o'clock in the afternoon. That's yeah, true. They could get up there and play a three hour show. Is it is it true that Alex, I mean, that uh, Neil used to pull the bus over like a couple hours outside the city and he'd get off the bus with his bicycle. The yes. bus would leave him there and he would ride the rest of the way in. More uh, than a couple hours, buddy. I'm talking, he was doing centuries, you know, 100 plus miles more than into that. the gig. Yeah, he was doing actually more than 100 yeah. miles. And then play a gig. Yes. One of the funniest stories was a Mercury record rep out of Chicago, Marvin Gleischer, his name was. And Marvin's a Greek guy. And he wanted to ride with Neil. And he was like, he was all fucked <laughs> up. Like, oh, well, I'll ride with you, Neil. I'm a bicycle guy. And Neil goes, okay, let's ride up to Milwaukee then, because that's where our next gig is. And Marvin got about two-thirds of the way <laughs> falling behind. And he, Neil was getting upset because he was holding him back. And he's, 
is driving and Marvin just said, he even wound up getting there and going, wow, man, I never realized how crazy it is to just do like, yeah. you know, that 90 plus mile drive on a bicycle. It just took him out, right? I mean, I, I do a lot of cycling now and I, I'm not going to lie. A big piece of it was inspired by what that guy did on that tour. I, you know, I, I've carried that with me ever since then. Just thinking, fuck me, man. Okay. If you want to really show you can do something, let's see if you can do that. You know, and I've done a century, you know, on a, on a few rides and I cannot even process what it must be like to do that and then do a show as physically as that guy does during the show. I mean, it's wow. superhuman. It's super human and he would do it over the course of a couple of nights in a row you know we'd do it two three in a row he would do it two three nights in a row it was it was mind-blowing it was totally totally mind-blowing i'll and never forget it when and when people say why would he want to you know go off on his own after a gig in the middle <laughs> of nowhere well the truth of the matter is he would go off in the middle of nowhere they would take a motel he would be with the security guys, you know, who would also follow him around sometimes. But he would go off to these little sleazy motels that, you know, no one would ever stay in other than some transient that's going from place to place. <laughs> and he loved that because he, could, he would meet people in the normal situation that wouldn't know who he was. Yeah. And there would be some really strange people backstage sometimes that he would yes. invite that would have no idea about music or, you know, and he would reveal to them after he became friends with them, meeting them as a stranger. They didn't know he was Neil Peart of Rush. He was just some guy on a bicycle. And then he would say, well, do you want to come see what I do? And he would bring them into these arenas and they were like, done <laughs> people. A lot of them look like farmers, but um, you know, it was, it was pretty amazing. Uh, he got to live, he was able to live um, a normal life like that before he went into the, you know, mode where everybody is calling him God and stuff, which he hated. Yeah. You know? He hated that, you know, didn't there, he? There is some really, really beautiful uh, uh, reminiscing of that in Ghost Rider, if you haven't read that book. Right. I mean, it's, you know, it's one of those books where when it first came out, I, I couldn't read it. Honestly, I, I I mean, I was just too wrapped up in it. I couldn't read it at the time. And after Neil passed, I've gone back and reread it now. And, you know, the beautiful part of it is if you knew the guy, you can hear his voice reading the book to you. And man, I mean, there's some really, really poignant moments in that book. It, it took me out for a couple of weeks. I'm not going to lie to you. I read it and it took me down for a couple of weeks. It, it brings tears to your eyes. It does. I'm, I, I'm schvetzing right now. I'm going to lie to you. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it was unfortunate that it ended for Neil the way it did because, um, you know, you say people don't deserve that after putting so much into what they want. It's their love, you know, but his love became his, you know, his, his being at the end because of how much pain he was in to produce what he needed to produce. It was very difficult yeah. and it was hard to, I had to watch him be carried off of the stage to his bus and wheeled out on a road case some nights because he was just in so much pain, but he played the show, which just, so it was understandable at the end. 
why he just needed some solitude. But yeah. no one ever thought that he would be gone, you know? Right. Well, you know, he, he, never, really, he, never, he never liked the adulation, did he? He, was, he just never no. understood it. From, uh, from, you know, oh, the, I, uh, I think he totally understood it, and that's why he avoided it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, my yeah, take yeah. on it. Yeah, yeah. Well, well he, the, the, the film, the Beyond the Lighted Stage, you know, the, the, the documentary, I remember he, he made this comment. He goes, Hey, I was a really big Hugh fan. I, it didn't make me want to go to their house and hang out outside. <laughs> it's right. I forgot to bother them. You know, it's just, you know, it's just, you know, I, 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 it's, it's so funny when you hear it described that way. No, I wouldn't want to hang out with Keith Moon. I experienced, <laughs> we experienced the who, you know, in the Edgewater hotel in Seattle, Washington, you ever go to that hotel? I remember the Edgewater. Course, That's the yes. Led Zeppelin hotel, isn't it? You were able to get fishing rods and fish out the window of your hotel room. And the who was staying there at the same time as Rush. And we all checked in. And one night, Keith Moon decided he wanted all of the rooms on the floor to adjoin. And he basically sledgehammered his way through all of the rooms on the floor under us. Right? And we were hearing this. And then he was dangling women out of the, over the water. You hear screaming and all sorts of loop law going on. It was insane what that guy did. And anyway, so of course we got blamed for it too. It's like, you know, I get my phone rings. I have to go down to the front office with the manager who was like freaking out about destroying his hotel. And I didn't know what he was talking about, although I heard it and he goes, um, I said, listen, these are the rooms that we're in. I don't think it's what you're looking for here. And he's like, um, let me take me up and show me your rooms. And I had to go walk through all the rooms with him. And as he opened the doors, and, you know, it was kind of crazy. But uh, those are some of the type things that we'd experience, right? Right. Sledgehammering. That's one day on the, on the life of the tour. <laughs> I know. There's always yeah. something to deal with. Hey, did did you two travel together? You guys on the same bus? I don't think so. Didn't uh, sometimes, sometimes, yeah. sometimes I would come with the band and get to participate in Halcyon Theater. That was always fun. Yeah. So <laughs> Halcyon Theater was the best. Well, 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 come on, you can't just say that. Not tell <laughs> I should let Howard explain it because when it was explained to me, it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. So I'll let you go, Howard. <laughs> if you want to, three go. guys and myself were on the bus, and. Um, you know, we were always watch movies. And then um, we used to take a Valium to after the show so that we could sleep on the bus because it was hard to sleep on a bus bouncing around. So we had some Valiums, originally started with Valiums. And then one day, my cousin who was a surgeon said, you know, you guys, you should try some of these, these Halcyons. And I'm like, well, what, what do they do? And he goes, yeah, just take, you know, you, can, you want to maybe want to take a half of water. You know, they're pretty powerful. They're freaking people have concussions, but they're relaxing. You'll have the best sleep you ever have. So, like idiots, we were going on a drive from um, New Haven, Connecticut to Hartford. I think it's about like, 60 miles or yeah, something. It's short, yeah. So we took them. Right? And we would always sit up on the couch and watch videos all night long. Movies and stuff. Blue Velvet was one of our favorites to watch. Yes. Yes. Blue Velvet. Heineken. Anyway. <laughs> we would we would take these 
this halcyon, and then you'd start to nod out. And they had these blinds behind your head, and when you would nod out, your head would hit the blinds and it would wake you up. And then you just go, oh man, like that. And so we dubbed it Halcyon Theater. So, you know, you have four guys sitting in the in the thing, and yeah, the everybody's couch. starting to nod off until one person falls asleep into the shades and wakes everybody else <laughs> yeah, up. It around. It and it's just a round robin of that for two and a half hours. You know, it was oh, the funniest funny. damn thing ever. <laughs> oh, yeah. And you're watching Blue Velvet. So. The calcium were good because we got to Hartford, Connecticut that night. We all went to the bar. We weren't even thinking. Like we had taken these things. We weren't even thinking. We went to the bar. It was a short drive. Drank a lot of drinks, like old fashions in Manhattans and stuff. And then went to sleep. And the next morning when the bar bill came in at $1,200, I actually argued with the front desk manager that we were at the bar. He went right to our rooms. <laughs> I didn't even remember that I was in the bar. And he goes... Let me show you something. And he brings over the bill. He goes, isn't this your signature? And I look at the bill and it's my signature. On it. I go, oh, yeah. He goes, I need the credit card now. I said, oh, okay. Oh, funny. Well, you, you were a bit of a bartender in those days, weren't you, on the bus? Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. What was, your, actually, what was your, could you make anything or did you have the Howard Ungerleiter special? I had also. You knew how to make a screwdriver. I know that. Is that screwdriver? No, it's like. <laughs> I actually, Kirk Hammett, to this day, I was the tour manager of the Ride the Lightning Tour for Metallica. Another one of the Peter Minch extravaganzas when he calls me up one day and goes, listen, the, the, the tour manager for Metallica is the most hated guy on the tour. The band don't like him. Do you want to take over the tour? Go, <laughs> Sounds appetizing, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, so I said, sure. You know, he goes, I, he, go, he goes, okay. You're going to have to go down and fire the, the the tour manager and take the books and make them give you all the float and cash. I'm like, wait, Peter, aren't you going to do this? He goes, no. He goes, I don't want the gig. He goes, you just told me you want it. You got to go down there and you deal with them. I said, is this guy going to be volatile? I, I, he goes, Howard, I don't care. You just go down there and do that. So he goes, gives me all the details, where the guy, the guy's name, and I fly to the hotel, check in. The Talca are doing like a large club in New York at the time. And it's like in a seedy area too. So probably the Moors in Brooklyn. Yeah, something like one of those Brooklyn clubs. And uh, the bus is parked down there. I haven't even met the band, and I have to fire the tour manager, which I have to, that's the first thing I do. So I go there and I fire the tour manager and uh, he was elated that I was coming to take over the gig. He basically gave me everything and he went, yes, fire, fuck those guys and all this. It's like, oh, all right. Well, he gives me all the books and I now I'm sitting in my room sorting it all out. And then I go, all right, let me go see this bus because I'm going to be traveling on it. I want to make sure it's comfortable. And I go on the bus and it's a normal bus, right? I think it was like a silver eagle or something and i noticed that it had cabinets so i decided i'm going to build a bar in there so before i even meet the bat i'm going to have a full-blown bar on that bus so i could start making drinks for them as soon as i meet them you know? <laughs> get them drinking that's the answer that's exactly what i did i bought everything from blue curacao i could make blue hawaii's mai tais i could make you know gin vodka martinis whatever you want you know black russians white russians you know uh Whatever I had, 
and I went out and I spent all this money and got this car going. Oh, I will also 151 Bacardi, which the van seemed to take to quite, quite nicely. And then over that time period, a lot of problems occurred with Lars, you know, running naked through the hallways of the hotel and lounging on the front desk couches, nude. And um, to this day, that Kirk, could be said, a problem. Kirk said that I was their, the biggest, uh, you know, educator into booze. If it wasn't for you, I probably wouldn't be drinking that. So. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, there was, you know, it was kind of a fun time back then. You know, kind of a fun time. That's that's uh, understating. The cocktail man. Yeah. Hey, so so why don't you guys? I, I I think everybody knows the relationship between you know Getty and Alex. I mean, they've known each other since grade school, and they're just such best friends. You know, what can you guys tell me about the dynamic between those two guys? Uh, well, I I mean, I'll just start it by, and I, I've said this before, but I you know I'm sure Howard will back me up on it. The, the thing I think a lot of the public doesn't see, I, and unless they've watched the movies and stuff about him now, but the thing at the time that I was working for him that didn't seem apparent to a lot of people is collectively, those three guys are the funniest human beings I have ever been around. That is that is the comedy team. I mean, it is the Marx Brothers, the Street Stooges, everything all wrapped into one. They are the funniest three human beings I have ever been around. Bar none, not even close. No close second place. Absolutely. <clears throat> They have the funniest senses of humor I have ever been around. And three discreetly different senses of humor. But really, really, if you get on the inside of that, man, you get ready. You're going to have some, <laughs> some, some hilarious days. Scove, you missed the most hilarious one. I, I'm not sure if you saw the bag. Did you ever see the bag? Oh, the bag. I, I know of the bag. <laughs> yes, the bag. So we, the were, on, <laughs> yes. we were on tour with, with Chris. Uh, with, I'm sorry, we were on tour with Kiss and uh, <laughs> Peter Chris, I need to say, and, and um, Ace Fraley days when Alex Lifeson used to get dressed up with in these ridiculous sweatpants that he would pull up to right below his, his chest and wear this shirt and put this bag over his head and, with a face on it and two little cutouts for his eyes so he could see where he was going. And he used to show up in these hotel rooms where the guys from Kiss were as the bag, cracking jokes and Nick and Ace Fraley and, and Peter Chris loved it to the point where they would request it on days off. Hey, are we going to see the bag tonight? Ace Fraley. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, yes, he has a good sense of humor. I mean, were you around Scoby for the days of the ignoroid hats? No, that was that predated me, I, I think. Uh, Although we, you know, we may, we may have revisited that at some point with the Roman helmets. I don't remember. Well, this was the um, solo cups that we used to put aluminum foil on. And there was like this huge rainstorm. And the guys in Russia, myself, were in the bus. And then we decided like, oh, there's this major rainstorm. We have to go to a truck stop. And we, you know, we want to go to use the washrooms and the truck stop. So, well, we need something to cover our heads. So we said, let's make these hats out of tin foil. So we had these solo cups that would cover the ears and this aluminum foil top on it. So you could hear the rain go, the aluminum foil and the cups. Everybody went into the truck stop with these ignoroid hats on, we call them. And it was just like classic moments like that. When you go stir crazy on a bus, 
you know, you do things that are just like ridiculous. All the truck stop, you know, the, all the rednecks in the truck stop look at us and go, oh, look at that, Lord. Horse shit on legs coming in. It's like stuff like that. Oh boy! You know, you know what was apparent to me during my time there. You know, is that these kind of things happen, and, and there were multiple instances of this, even during my short tenure there, where you just start realizing, okay, these guys have been touring too long because you've got to find something to break up the monotony. You know, I mean, it just can't be forty years of just cycling the same tour. I mean, there's got to be things to be done. You know, and and there were a lot of instances like that. I, I mean, one that comes to mind for me, Howard. I don't know if you remember this. Do you remember Tuxedo Tuesdays? Oh, yeah. I remember that one. <laughs> so it, the rule was if you had a night off and it was a Tuesday, we had tux, tuxedo rentals come and everybody could rent a tuxedo <laughs> and you would go bowling and bowling and drinking in tuxedos. That would, would happen on two, all Tuesday nights off. You know? <laughs> I, I still have some great, fantastic pictures from a couple of tuxedo Tuesday nights. Oh, you sent me a picture of you and I in a tuxedo. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. They were pretty special. A lot of a lot of drinking, a lot of bowling. Yes. So oh, to great. tell me some of these tuxedos were ill-fitting. All of them were ill-fitting. <laughs> there was no sizing going on. There would just be a big rack of tuxedos show up and pick one and put it on. Let's go bowling, you know. <laughs> oh, how funny. How funny. That was and obviously the band were into that and they paid for it and they did all oh, that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. I mean, and they were great about that kind of stuff. I mean, really. I mean, you think about that kind of stuff. At the golf tournaments that we had, like we used to hold our own golf tournaments at, I mean, at swanky clubs, you know, with excellent and prizes, with excellent prizes. Yes, yeah. indeed. I mean, we had, you know, full trophy sets, the whole nine yards, they'd give us the clubhouse, you know, we'd have a big ceremony, everything. And we would always have a, a, a theme for the golf tournament, you know, and I, I still to my day, my favorite theme out of all of them was slap shot. Like the, the theme of the golf tournament <laughs> is slap shot. <laughs> so it, it, the deal was on the first tee, you had to have a hockey stick in your golf bag and you had to tee <laughs> off the first tee with the hockey stick. That was the first thing. And if you wanted to come dressed as the Hanson brothers, you could, of course, you know, so we had, I, so here we are in these really swanky clubs and these bunch of fucking yahoos out on the course in hockey shirts and hockey sticks. Oh, it was just a mess, man. It was so fun. Oh, that is so much priceless. fun. Oh, oh yeah. That's... We had a lot. Of... Yeah. And it, I mean, the beauty of it was that the band was completely behind it. I mean, Al, both Alex and Ged were playing golf at that time. You know, we kind of got him into the fold. Neil would be driving one of the carts. He was the kind of the rules commissioner. <laughs> Gildersleeve, man. It was, it was classic, man. I remember we were, we were down on the Blue Monster. <laughs> yeah. Uh, at Durval, yeah. Played that in, at Durval. And I was up and of course, because I'm just the worst golfer ever, I, I tee off and the guys that I was with go, Howard, yell four. And I'm like, why? And he goes, there's a guy right there. Your ball just went right by his head. Almost took him out. And then he, he goes, this is embarrassing. I have to run down and just apologize to this guy. Then they come back and he goes down. He's, I see them talking to the guy. The guy's like arms are flailing a little bit. And then they come back and they go, do you know who you almost took out? And I go, no. They go, that was Sylvester Stallone. I went, what? So I then had embroidered on my, on my golf bag, 
heads up Stallone. <laughs> After that, everybody was like, are you going to go take someone? Yeah, there was, when we were out there, I mean, there was no safe place. I mean, no. <laughs> there was no safe place on the golf course. Because, I mean, you'd have the, like, you had to put together teams, you know, like teams of four. So there was almost like a mock draft, you know, on the few days before the tournament where everybody would be kind of lining up their teams. Okay, I want that guy on my team, you know. I mean, truck drivers, bus drivers, everybody. It sounds, it sounds to me like there was involved. no safe place on the tour, never mind the well, golf course. That might be true, too, yeah. <laughs> I think the other thing I remember about th that period of time, uh, which was really unique. I mean, this was a really, really unique thing for a tour to do. I've never seen anything remotely like it is we had our own tour newspaper. You remember this Howard, the vortex? Of course I know the vortex. <laughs> so it was great. Like everybody took on an assignment to write an article about the tour, you know, and you know, like I did, I, I did some of the cartoons and I would write articles as well. Neil would always write an article. He was the primary editor for the paper. It was, man, it was really, really funny. Like there was, you know, we'd recover, like there was a news section where we recover the, the events of the week, you know, and most of them revolved around John Whitehead, the, the accountant and what, how we were torturing him. You know, there was always a, there was always a good article on that in there. Yeah, he endured a lot because of some of the the, the phrases that he uh, that he would uh, say yeah, to the people. Yeah. He didn't like road crew very much. He would not travel with the road crew. He insisted on having his own car, and he would never dine with the road crew. So it was uh, a lot of people didn't like the, yeah. didn't like him. Very I always much. remember Slider. He was all over it, man. I mean, he was like our point person. <laughs> to get hold of Whitehead and do things. And, and it became like this little, it almost came like zero dark 30 every week, you know, like we're putting together a mission. All right. This is what's going to happen on Friday. You know, okay. Okay. Delta team you're in, go get the car, you know? So like one of the things I always remember slider doing is somehow he got a hold of Whitehead's credit card and rental car membership numbers. Right. So whenever Whitehead would book his car to go to the next city, Slider would always go in and change his reservation <laughs> every time. We'd like either put well, him in a really, really expensive car or put him in just a beater, you know, like the oldest beater you could get a hold of. <laughs> He'd do it every week. And, and John never picked up on it. I was like, how are you not getting this? You know? <laughs> and, what, what, and you know, one, one, one of the funniest things he did is he had this device that he put in the <laughs> tailpipe of his rental car that it would make this whistle sound. The faster you would go, the, the more high pitch it would get. And it'd be like, like that. You accelerate and go like that. And he'd have to do like these three, 400 mile drives in his car with this thing. And he wouldn't know where it was coming from. And then one day he put the metal epoxy into yeah, where the yeah. key goes in. So he into the car. But I, you know, I remember Jimmy Johnson, one, you know, God rest him. He, he, he planned that whole thing with the glue. Like, it, like, again, like it was some sort of mission. Like he was like, no, what you got to have is you got to have the right gauge of guitar string so that when you push it in, it actually opens the slot. So the glue can go down into the keyhole. You know, I mean, he had it just all mapped out. You know, oh, he was, yeah. he was yeah. so into it. So, so he would so glue good. the key to the ignition. But no, he would glue the, like the key where you open the door, unlock the door. Right. He would just let glue dribble down in there so you couldn't open the door. It would just, you know, uh, the key wouldn't fit in the lock. The, the other one I remember like that, that was really funny. And Leamy drove some of this one, believe it or not. 
Do you remember Howard, him coming to us and saying, fellas, we've got to cut back on the ketchup and mustard on the bus. We can't afford ketchup oh, and yeah. mustard on the bus anymore. It was like, we can't watch. <laughs> so next day in his rental car, we went out and filled the windshield wiper up, windshield wiper fluid, filled that up with ketchup and mustard. And that became a, a normal day. So if he ever turned on the windshield wipers, it was going to be ketchup and mustard coming out of that windshield wiper. You know? <laughs> oh my yeah. gosh. Mm. We had so that was a fun. really fun time. I mean, it was the funnest tours I've ever done by, by, by a yeah. long shot. I mean, it wasn't close, you know, I mean, Jeez, and I've been not, on some fun tours, not, but that was special. And we've not talked about sound delights at all. On this podcast. <laughs> 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 uh, funny. So to, you know, let's reminisce on what it feels like during the show. Okay. We, we, you know, Howard or Robert, you know, house lights go off my favorite time of the night. What's it feel like? Oh, you get hit in the head with a hot dog. <laughs> Ignorant. I remember that on the hot lights going off. I, you know, you, you don't know what it is because it's, you know, it's dark and then the lights go off. And all of a sudden there's a very familiar smell. Um, I have to follow it with the, with the John Whitehead story because it, it's the smell of mustard and ketchup. You know, hitting like you get beamed on the head and your eyes start to burn and the lights are out. That's, you know, the first thing that I remember comes to my mind because it happened. And but the thing when the lights do go off on a normal day, um, there's an exhilaration like I'm almost in a trance where. I, I just, my focus is the stage and my console and I don't really see anything else. And um, because I'm a musician, I, I feel the anticipation that the band would most likely be feeling before they start. I don't know about you, Robert. That question. You know, it's funny. I, I can go back and listen to desk tapes and stuff from that period and it'll take me right back to that night I, I mean i can just recall it so clearly and you know there i can remember there being specific songs that had such deep meaning to me when i was a kid growing up listening to this especially things off farewell to kings and things like that you know um hemispheres you know songs from that era i i, I listened to those records till i was blue in the face so to be able to, to mix those you know and have those moments kind of come up in the show <clears throat> Man, I, I mean, I'm, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. It's funny. I was listening to one the other day, and I, I don't remember what tour it's from, but it was toward the end of the show, and they, but they would always do that transition from trees into Xanadu. And man, I, that was just the biggest, most cinematic moment in that show. And, and you know, I'm going to give you some love here, Howard. I, I try to do this whenever I get the opportunity to do this. <clears throat> like I said, I've seen... I mean, I've seen so many Rush shows in my life, let alone the ones that I've mixed. And I can say this unequivocally about Howard. Howard's use of color, of color and color temperature is unlike any person that's ever done lights. I'm sorry, it, there's no one that's handled that like Howard. And man, to have those moments where you're, now you're not only listening to audio, but you're having that sitting right in front of you. I mean, I'm just covered in chills right now. 
it was a really, really special moment. And, and, you know, we were trying to do really some unique things at those times. You know I mean? We were, we were trying to do some round sound when that was going on. And for those moments in the show where we could really accentuate that and show that, man, those were some pretty big moments in live sound and, and concert production. You know, I mean, it was cool. It was really cool to be a part of that. I got to say. Mm -hmm. So you can ap appreciate the fact that they invested in the production. They yeah. Were oh, very much. They so. spent yeah. the money. They, they wanted it to be the best it could be. Yeah. 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 It was great. Always. It's their music yeah. was so amazing and we wanted to keep up with them and deliver a show that would be on par with what they were doing without right. overwhelming, you know, just enhancing. And, you know, Robert's sound was also amazing. I know it's the mutual love <laughs> yeah. society here today, but it's, it's, it's the truth. You know, when you have a band of that stature and the production can match what the band's doing so that the audience can get the best out of a performance in not only visual, but audio, you know, audio visual and creates an excitement and it creates memories that you will never forget as you, as we're reminiscing now, just from our memories. I'm, I could imagine what the, most of the Rush fans right. memories would be. Of well, those I, I was going to say that actually, I think that's their, what this band was able to pull off live, right? I think that's what drove so much of their success through the years, you know? I mean, it was one of those things where, you, yeah, you love Rush. Have you seen him? Oh, my gosh, if you go see him, it's just unbelievable. I mean, you know, I mean, them using film and all that kind of stuff, it, you know, actually is going to make me ask a question. So I, I got a question for Howard that I, I have wanted to ask him in this for a long time. We might get a little geeky here for a minute. So uh, can I go ahead all with right, this? Go ahead. All right. So, Howard. Yeah. You know, you and I are old enough to remember what it was like when we only had incandescent light, right? And film, right? And there was there was a certain temperature and look to that that, I mean, it was really, really engaging. So when as the move started happening to LED light and to video, how, how challenging was it for you to make that transition and keep that, especially your your skill in use of color? Right. Did it open up more possibilities or did it make that more challenging because of the starkness of LED and video, right? As opposed to incandescent and film. Yeah, well, originally it was, you know, you have, it was an LED when it first started. And I was one of the last, like I wanted to exhaust everything there was um, with conventional lighting before I ventured into, you know, the very lights, which everyone was like the, f the flavor of the year when it first, and I could understand why, but I didn't want to go there right away until I have exhausted every possibility with conventional lighting. So it took me until probably around 86, 87, before I decided I would use automated right. lighting fixtures, which were not LEDs at the time. And then, you know, LEDs is something that has come out over the last, I guess, for lighting fixtures, 10, 15 years. And, um, yeah, it's a completely different um, animal for light temperatures. Like, you know, we, when we first started in, the, in this business, we would do a, what's called 3200 to 4800 Kelvin for light temperatures. Uh, 3200 being like an incandescent yellow feel. And like most of your par cans were burning in that range. 
And then you would get up to originally when you would go to these moving intelligent fixtures, went up to 5,600, which is daylight, okay. which is white and daylight. You could even go up as high as 6,800, which is bright white. And the colors that you would be able to achieve from the original very light fixtures were amazing. There was a company that they were using to create these dichroic filters in the lights, which are prismatic glass and different color. And you would mix those within the fixture to get break out your different colors. So there was a company called Ocean Optics that made a lot of these, these dichros at the time, which were beautiful saturated colors, which I loved, yeah. always loved. And I was a big fan on color. And the use of color to the point where, you know, people would argue with me about the colors I would use and say, it's not right. Give me a to break. Use these colors. And Give I, me a break. Yeah, I know. I said, you know, was it too, it's like saying yeah, too many right. notes, right. you know? So anyway, when it, when it did come to that, I, I managed to, to create what I needed with color temperature. And that's how I, achieve that yeah. on the transition. I, I always wondered about that. I, and, you know, Chris, it actually, when I asked, as I was asking the question, it started making me think about something that I think you went through with nine inch nails, right? Which was where they started using video wall as lighting. Is that right? Do, do I remember that right? It's uh, exactly that. Yeah, that was, that was trans directive. Yeah. <clears throat> and we hung the video screens in such a way where it could be over the band horizontal over the band or vertical behind the band. And, uh, you know, Trent was really fascinated with what a photocopier looked like when it used to go back and forth to make the copy, you know, the yeah. old school copiers, you'd see the light go all the way across the paper and back again. And so that was one of the things he wanted to see. He wanted the video screens above him and to have it look like That's cool. a <laughs> was running above him. So, yeah, yeah. So we worked on a lot of things like that. Yeah, you know, so. I, part of the reason I asked Howard is because, you know, I think you can make a fair comparison <clears throat> to the, how do I want to put this? You know, the emotional impact of film compared to the emotional impact of video for the same story, right? Have the same movie in both formats and they evoke a very different emotion depending on the look and temperature of what you're seeing, you know? And I, I'm wondering if lighting guys are going through that same thing or have gone through that same thing with incandescent and film versus video and LED, you know? Is it, is it like a move yeah, because of the video? There, there's a certain texture on film that you can't really capture with video. So in order to simulate that, for many rush tours, I don't know if you remember this, Robert, I used to hang on a, a black sharp's I, I tooth do. Yeah, script. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Right? And that would soften the imagery and give you that cinematic effect more than it would look like film. Yeah, it was brilliant. I, I, I remember, remember the first time you hung, I, I think you hung some of that stuff down in front of the band a couple times too, or is that right? Yeah, which was I really did. a stark look. I mean, it was really, I shouldn't even say stark, it wasn't stark, but it was really dramatic, you know. Yeah, it was dimensional. I, I actually did that for a song called Scars, Scars right. that they did, it was instrumental. And it was, it was, it was really, really cool. It'll give you a really nice depth. It put the band in between two mediums, which I love. It's great. Mm -hmm. Well, even today in 2021, I still prefer projection over LED, you know, the, just the warmth of it. Even in the new laser projectors, they're really bright. You know, I really feel, uh, I don't know. It's more, uh, maybe because it's a light source. I don't know. 
What do you think, Howard? Well, I mean, there's always that quality to projectors. There's always very many problems that happen with projectors. I know because I used three 35 millimeters on Rush for a while in the nightmares. Light Joe Bob. Something breaks, something breaks and you have to relight it up and you have to count sprocket holes and you spend your day off all day for probably most of the day into the evening in the morning until the sun rose getting that sink back with the sprocket holes. So that's the downside of it. The upside is when I wanted to have an IMAX format without having an IMAX projector, we feathered three 35s together to give you that 80 foot width and that 20 foot high sort of IMAX format without an IMAX projector. And, you know, we, we had them all synced up beautifully with encoders so that the motors would all run at the same time so they wouldn't wander from each other. It was, it was, it was intense for nice. the time, no doubt. Yeah. But, you know, the thing I always remember about that, and again, kind of speaking as a fan here, seeing all those shows versus the later shows, is that in those days, the, it, it never seemed like the film, even it, when it was on that grand a scale, I mean, it was the width of the stage and the height of the truss, never seemed to compete with the lighting. You know, it never seemed to overwhelm it. it I, those two things always felt really complementary to each other in terms of color and being able to see what you were doing lighting-wise. And that seemed harder to do uh, in the later years with, you know, stark, really stark video versus stark LED lighting. It was harder to see what the actual lighting design was, you know. I, that's just my just my own response to it. I, it's not that I liked it any less. It was just very different, you know. You know, I I also think um, I was fortunate enough to have the control, talking to the cinematic artists that were creating the what we were showing on the screen, all the content. I was able to speak with them about color, um, which is really funny because it's the band would allow me to go in and adjust color temperatures and pick colors for the different um, content that we were projecting so that it would blend seamlessly with what was happening on the stage awesome. with lighting. And um, it's awesome. I mean, that's, you get a nice end result, whether it be video yeah. or film, yeah. you can, you know. I always remember when you started doing colored lasers too, those really, you know, really deep, dark colors in lasers, man, that was just spectacular looking the way you yeah. use that. Yeah. And you, I don't care. I, I'll say it. I, I don't think anybody ever used lasers as good as you used them either. I, you just, it was just magic with that. You know? Is that the reason you have a laser company? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. One of, I don't one think of the it's any coincidence that there were lasers on Def Leppard either, right? <laughs> no, as a matter of fact, that was, uh, that was um, you know, one of the parts of my design was building trap doors into the stage to put the lasers into so that when the, you weren't using the lasers, you, the band could use that part of the stage without, the, without a gaping hole. And I believe it was Charlie Kale built that stage and he did a great job so that, you know, we could swing those doors open, the lasers can come out for the laser songs and then they would close back up so the band can stand there and play. You just, the you just had to hope the guitar players hadn't had too many screwdrivers and went face planting right into the lasers. That's, That's the only ch challenge there, right? All right. Well, Matt Drews would <laughs> yes. up in the lasers one day. <laughs> he was focusing. He was on there trying to focus one of the lights that was out. 
and he was walking backwards, not looking. Oh. And it was open, and then he fell. It looked like he had been tortured in the ancient times, <laughs> all because we had we had cut dichroic prismatic glass on the laser tape. Was they were laser projectors that had prismatic glass on them, and it was like hundreds of pieces of prismatic glass. And when he fell there, and Charlie Hernandez came out not to help Matt, but to scream at him for being such an idiot, which he wasn't an idiot, it was an accident, you know? And Charlie Hernandez lost it on a guy that's in severe pain with glass in his back. I thought that was another classic moment. That, that is truly adding insult to injury. <laughs> oh, so, so, go ahead. No, I was going to say, you know Charlie. And uh, it was just, it was one of his classic appearances there. It's like amazing. Hey, so we just talked about how, how great production was, you know, that they didn't, they didn't, you know, expense was, was not an issue when it came to lighting, video, lasers, surround sound, et cetera. Now their sense of humor also translated on stage and into production. You know, like for example, Getty's back line is washing machines or, or, or roasting chickens or whatever. What are some other examples of, of how their their sense of humor translated on stage? They were endlessly talking to each other on stage about things that didn't have anything to do with what they were playing. And they would <laughs> they would try to make each other mess up while they were playing. You know, and they would go to Neil and start making crazy faces at him. You know, they would, Alex would say things in the microphone because they're all wear ear monitors. And he would say crazy things that try to make Ged laugh. And uh, it was it was enjoyable to watch, you know. I forget they were bring things on stage sometimes, like props on stage and kick them around and. It's kind of funny. Do you remember well, anything? I think like one of the funniest right? things I remember. There's two, and I, I hope I'm not going to talk out of school about one of these here. So I, we may have to edit this out. <clears throat> but the first one I remember. I mean, the the thing you have to realize about working night overnight overnight with Rush is how, their consistency. I mean, they are unbelievable. I mean, they are on on the game. I mean, nearly every night. I mean, the amount of you know big mistakes I ever heard them make. I mean, I could count them on two, three fingers. But on one night, I, I remember this happening where all three of them started a different song. Do you remember this? It wasn't like one man member started the wrong song. All three of them started the wrong song. It was on the set list. All three of them started a different song. <laughs> and the, the calamity that happened when it came to a stop was funny. But just to see them all kind of turn around and look at each other and all realized that they were all on the wrong song and the the laughter that happened on that stage during that moment was priceless man i i've never seen three guys more out of control laughing and trying to hold it together to actually go and start the song again man it, it was a funny moment oh yeah that was one of the <laughs> classic moments no, never uh, saw it again the other classic know? moments <clears throat> like when would get would do his little solo on uh, on yyz he was be playing it and then uh it was a couple nights where you just totally fluffed it. I went up to him afterwards and I went, what the hell happened there? I was, I was thinking of baseball scores. 
so the other one I'm going to tell here, and this is this is the most I think this might be the most inside thing I ever learned in my time with Rush was they were everybody was just hanging out loose in the dressing room. I was in the dressing room just kind of hanging out and the TV was on off in the corner. Right. And if you're familiar with the song La Vila Strandiato, there is a segment in that that goes right. Everybody knows that part. So yeah, yeah, yeah. we're sitting in the dressing room. On the TV comes a cartoon. <laughs> Do you know this story? And it's the Zoot Suit Cats, right? Like the I, I guess it's Warner Brothers or whatever. And it's the horns. And not a word was said. Not a word was said in that dressing room, but everybody was looking at each other going, yeah. <laughs> They, they totally stole that right from that and put it in that song. <laughs> I just remember sitting there thinking, you motherfuckers, that is the funniest damn thing I've ever seen. Just the, this, this look of satisfaction between all three of those guys. That I was like, okay, that's uh, cool. Well, well, they also took that, well, that Cheech and Chong movie where, they, uh, where, where that song ended. Within songs like nothing could end like Tom right, Sawyer. right. <laughs> there were so many inside uh, jokes, well, like this, that, and it was it was just funny. I can imagine. Well, this is a, a good segue into musicianship. You know, you were saying earlier that they were, you know, incredibly consistent. Was that was that due to lots of rehearsals or long sound checks or what? What 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 made them so consistent? You think? Seriousness about that part of it, yeah, yeah. They were very serious. They were very, um, I say, zero tolerance for something that wasn't just perfect. And they wanted perfection. That's they challenged themselves. That's one of the things they would always say. We challenge ourselves. So. And it's not interesting unless you can challenge yourself. And if you can challenge yourself and pull it off, right? then you can move to the next level, which is uh, so you know, I, I remember in, I, it might have been my first week up in, uh, what was the name of that? What was the place we used to rehearse up there? Was uh, what, what sound company was it up there in Toronto? Oh, when? What uh, year? This would have been 8990. United. Like At any rate, United Sound. <clears throat> Was it up in the Thornhill? Uh, I can't remember, man. Too many brain cells ago. Anyway, All right, well, they always had a place they were rehearsing. In, you know, the band is in the other room rehearsing. I'm set up in another room, you know, consoles, et cetera, just kind of checking things. And I just happened to be walking in as they were getting on a break. And this will drive home what Howard was talking about. So, Shrav, the drum tech had been working on something on the kit, you know, trying to fix something or build something, et cetera. And I, I heard him say to Neil, hey, is that okay for you? Is it, is it, is it okay? And Neil turned to him and goes, if it's perfect, it'll be fine. And I remember thinking, okay, that's where we are here. You know, that's the expectation. Uh, if it's perfect, it'll be fine. You know, and you know, you, you, you kind of got a sense of that seriousness from them all the time. And, and I, I, I mean, I always took my cues on that from Neil, honestly, because I, I think Howard will back me up here. You know, before the band ever got together to rehearse in those places up there, Neil was in there for weeks previous to them being there rehearsing on his own, like to the songs 
you know, he would just play to pre-recorded tracks, whatever, and get his world together before the band ever walked in. And so, I mean, it was kind of like that for as funny as those guys were and as loose and everything as it was outside of the time the show was going on. When the show was going on, I mean, you put your game face on. I mean, it was like, hey, let, yeah. this is for real here. Yeah, you know? there, no fooling around here. There was zero tolerance. And um, you never wanted to get the no, look never, over the glasses never. from getting to Robert, show them the look over the glasses. What's that, Howard? Did you say? Wait, 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 this, this is this is an yeah. audio, this is yeah. an audio show. <laughs> yeah, that was the look. He would lower the he, he, yeah he would lower the glasses onto the very bottom of his nose and look at you. You know, whatever came out of his mouth when that happened not was gonna not going to be good. I saw him give that look to Dan Rather during the interview. By the way, I remember seeing that he had the glasses on and he gave it one of these. I remember thinking, "Oh, Dan, why'd I ask a touchy mm -hmm. question there? That's good." Hey, hey Scobie, so going back to Neil coming in a couple weeks prior to everybody else, and I think, you know, I, I think a, even the casual Rush fan knows that he evolved every, you know, every record cycle, he would evolve a little bit more, whether it be playing style or whether it be implementing new yeah. kinds of technology or, you know, even if it's simple back in the old days, they added wood blocks. To a song so therefore he had added the wood blocks you know but it evolved into you know electronic drums and, and a different style and then he started playing side stick at some point you know he just he was just constantly yeah traditional grip i you know i was there during that that transition for sure of him studying with freddie gruber and going to traditional grip you know that was hey man don't underestimate that that was a big big deal for that guy i mean and, you know, not for nothing. I, I mean, that changed the way he played. It changed his sound. I mean, without a doubt, going from match grip to, uh, you know, traditional grip, it changed his drumming. I mean, I, I remember really the first tour that I, he really committed to doing a lot with that grip was Test for Echo. And it changed the drum sound. I mean, all of a sudden it was just like, wow, that's not Neil Peart right now. That's not the Neil Peart sound, which was all, you know, I mean, he set the standard, come on, let's face it, for power and rudiments in drumming. I mean, it wasn't just that he could play a five-stroke roll or a nine-stroke roll or a double paradiddle. It was the power with which he did it and the, the drum sound that came along with that. He changed that whole game. Did they have a, did they have a traditional tuning room backstage? Oh, yeah. yeah. Did the kidding? three of them used to set up in a room and, 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 and play no. before the show? Neil had his own room. Neil used to play with him, you know, he used to go in there and play his own kit. He, he had a practice kit. Little baby kit. Yeah. yeah, and the other two guys would do their own thing in the same room, not at the same time. Well, that, you know, that did change at one point, though, Howard. Remember when we had Primus opening up? Oh, yeah. And we, we opened up, we called it the 60s Jam Room, right? You remember this? where we had that big road case that was just filled with every freaking instrument you could think of. There might be accordions in there, trumpets, whatever. Was that on Roll the Bones? I think it was. Yeah, because uh, we did it. In, I remember us doing the 60s jam room outside of a trailer, I think in Germany. Was we, didn't we go overseas on that tour? I wasn't on that tour. Right. That was the right. only tour I wasn't on. I had, right. Yeah, I, I'm just put having that realization right now. That was Richardson, wasn't yes. it? Yes. Right. Well, I, I, 
I'll give you the Reader's Digest version of that story. So on that tour, uh, Primus was opening up for us. And the band actually kind of got in the habit of going into the same room and just kind of doing a few jams together. No songs, no rush songs. Just start a groove and start jamming. And somehow the Primus guys got a hold of that and they would come back and listen. And then they started coming in and joining them. So you ended up with this kind of entourage of people kind of doing this little warm-up thing before Primus would go on. Well, it kind of took another step further where it became open invitation. Just bring an instrument in. doesn't matter whether it's an instrument you can play. Just try to fit in somewhere and start playing. And we'd start getting crowds gathering around the dressing room listening to this, you know. We got to the point, Leamy, we came so close to doing it. Uh, it just got to be one of those things where it's like, eh, that might just be a little too much. Leamy was going to run a snake back there, and we were going to put a couple of microphones in that room and have it be the walk-in music. <laughs> I mean, it was just going to be this kind of ambient walk-in music that was going to happen. I, it would have been spectacular. I mean, it was just so much fun, you know? Uh, so then the kind of the, uh, it was kind of like Tuxedo Tuesday a little bit. You know, from that point on, if you were on a day off and you were in a pawn shop, you were kind of ordered. If you see a really cool instrument, go in and buy it. We'll, we'll give you, we'll reimburse you for it. We'll put it in the 60s jam room box and make it where somebody can pick up an instrument and start playing. You know, I mean, it was, it was hilariously fun. Oh, uh, you know? fun. Okay. So Rush also, you know, mainly because of my relationship with you guys that I, that I know this, but they were lovers of good food and wine. <laughs> so yeah. any uh and and you guys dine out with them a lot uh certainly howard more than me but i had certainly my fair share of the living like king's club That's who, sure. who, who got the wine list who, who in those moments who, who got the wine list <laughs> well giddy always liked to peruse alex also was good at that yeah you know um <clears throat> for years i had a wine education through them it was pretty amazing, you know. Could never afford the bottles that they would pick. The bottles they would pick would be just incredible. Yeah, and yeah, uh, that's the truth. You know, for someone who hadn't had wine more than like from college, a college wine like Boone's Farm Apple Wine, <laughs> Valley High, <laughs> the, the trashy wines. And then you would, you know, finally Matus came out and you went, oh, this is a better wine. Well, none of these wines were of that caliber. They were so far beyond. And, you know, it would be like liquid candy. And the taste was amazing. And I have been educated by wine palate now. People have called me a wine snob, which is not good. <laughs> That's a compliment. Yes, is it? Uh, to me, it is. <laughs> Okay, well, there you go. So I'm a, so I have, I, I must not be there yet. They haven't called me a wine snob yet, but uh, you know, I'm working on it. Well, you're a sound snob if that helps. <laughs> no, that, that's all I'm okay with that one. Yeah, you can call me that one all you want. I'll, I'll take you up on that. Yeah, I, I'm kind of with Howard there. It was an education process for me yeah. I mean, going out to eat, certainly going out to eat with Ged and, and Alex. I mean, it was always top shelf. I mean, you were going to get a good bottle of wine and probably something else along with it in the meal. I mean, yeah. Howard, do you remember the night we went to, because uh, I think you were at this meal. Uh, we, it was me and Ged and Alex for sure. I don't think Neil was there, of course. Right. Uh, but I'm pretty sure you were there at the Majestic Oyster Bar and Grill in Indianapolis. I, I could you remember that? Because 
I mean, we hadn't been seated for five minutes and Alex goes, bring us one of everything on the appetizer list. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the table couldn't hold it. I mean, the appetizer list was, you know, 30 deep. And that was the beginning of the meal. You know, you can imagine. I remember the seafood tower. That was pretty ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. You know? But I mean, it wasn't uncommon to do that. You know, I, 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 I'm starting to remember so many things now. So I, do you remember us calling that the Living Like Kings Club? You know, we had the Living yes, Like Kings Club. <laughs> Chris, do you know Bill Chrysler? I know Bill, a monitor guy, right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I worked with Bill once. He was out on the tour at that point, and he was in charge of the cheap club. So we had the Live Like Kings <laughs> Club and Bill Chrysler in charge of the cheap club. So they, you know, they, they didn't go out on days off. It was all about maintaining your per diem. And one of their tricks was always to go into the hotel and tell them you're a diabetic so that you could get a fridge in your room so you could go shopping at the grocery store and keep food in your room. That was the president of the cheap club always did that one. You know? So the, I remember, I remember we were in some hotel. I don't remember what it was now, but I remember listening to the people at the front desk talk and they were like, yeah, man, I feel bad for these guys. There's so many diabetics on this tour because <laughs> <laughs> they had to provide, this is like law that you have to provide a fridge. If somebody's diabetic and hotels, they had like 12 refrigerators sent up to the oh, funny. for the cheap club guys. You know? Those guys from rush, they're all have diabetes. I don't know. Yeah. They're all diabetics. It's so sad. It's from all the, oh, from all the good food so and wine. <laughs> Uh, surprised nobody got gout oh my well yeah no kidding right i remember that night in indianapolis alex bought me a bottle of sempe that was made in my birth year which was 1960 and we drank that and it was a long trip home i, <laughs> I was having trouble getting i was having trouble maintaining so was he me and alex had a few nights yeah we had some good nights i mean we had a few nights i remember having an amazing dinner down at the Biltmore Hotel. We were staying there in this five-star, this Michelin five-star restaurant called Orange at the time. And I know it. They were ordering bottles of wine that were in the two, three thousand dollar range. They would pour them through cheesecloth before you would have it. It was crazy. And <laughs> you know, it was situations like that. There was so many of them. You know, four seasons hotels and we were just living up a good life. Well, they were collecting wine when we were on the road. I, re I remember they had one bay of the bus that was nothing but the wine cellar. I mean, it was, it was very all wines when we had to go across the, the border with that one day and they took it all away. Yeah. <clears throat> Two cases of Dom Perignon champagne. You can do the math on that. <laughs> oh, good grief. And we made them stir well, down the tree while remember. we watched because we didn't want them taking it home. So if you're going to take it, we want to watch you empty it. Yeah, destroy it. Watch yes. I remember Alex getting hooked up with the guys at Phelps Wineries. He was really close with those guys. No. He may still be. I don't know. I went out a long time. Them. And man, they were bringing some spectacular wines to the shows. Woo. Yeah, the 1968 Bacchus Vineyard is amazing wine. They had beautiful Cabernet Sauvignon there. That was insane. And uh, they had this Johannesburg Riesling that was amazing. And all the Phelps guys, they used to, they come to the show with lots of wine. Yeah. It's, it's nice, having, I remember, it's nice I, having those contacts. Yeah. I remember being at a meal once with Ged and we were looking at the wine list and I saw his eyes perk up and he goes, oh, we're going to have this. <laughs> and he ordered it. 
And it was a, a really rare year of the Bulu Vineyards Latour stock. And man, I just remember drinking that thinking, I've never drank wine like this. I, I mean, it was just surreal. I mean, it was just one of those moments kind of going, man, I, this, is a, this is a level of wine drinking I am not familiar with right here. It was just incredible. And I never will again. That's what I said. I never will again. Yeah. Unless I'm out with Chris Kanzi on tour, because there things happen when you're on tour with Chris yeah. Kanzi. I've learned this. They used the to. Years. Yeah. We still will. <laughs> yeah, we will. You know, the funny thing, Chris, you know, I, and I, you know, I know Howard remembers this, but most people don't realize this, that Howard and I work together outside of Rush as well. We actually did a Tesla tour together. Yeah. Okay. Howard was lights. I was doing front of house for a great radio controversy. That was a fun time too. It was a fun time. Yeah. Okay. What do you got? A lot of blue velvet movie watching on that as well. So come on, it's more than that. <laughs> no, no, it's nothing. We, you know, we just kind of transitioned right from one tour to the other. Yeah. We, we were kind of a team there for a little bit. Right. You, nice. you didn't make the transition to the Queensryche like I did though. I know. I actually wish I would have. I, I would have. Oh, you really wouldn't have been on that version of Queens. Well, you wouldn't so. have been on Roll the Bones if that would have happened. That's true. That's true. I mean, that's why I wasn't on Roll the Bones because I was doing Empire and you know that whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That was big. That Queens stuff was huge. That was. Yeah. It was at that time. Yeah. No doubt about it. Was that uh, early nineties? Right. Yeah. It was ninety-three. Yeah. 93 was right on the Roll the Bones tour. You know, I was like, they had, Russia had taken a three-year break and I had to get a, a gig so I could enjoy my Boone Farm <laughs> apple wine. You know? <laughs> anyway, so I, I took the gig. It was only supposed to be like a year, but it went to 16 months because they had that huge silent lucidity hit. And they yeah, were all... Yeah, we, big, we all big song going, there did Operation Mindcrime in its entirety on that tour. And I had, I had brought it to life on, this, on a screen behind the band and had all these cool, you know, actors up there and people that were, would sing duets with Jeff Tate. It was kind of fun. That, that was an amazing tour, Howard. I, an amazing tour. Yeah. I remember seeing that and just being kind of blown away by it. That was a, a really underrated band, especially during that period of their time. Man, they were, mm -hmm. they had it going on. Really too bad that they didn't make it, you know, it was wild, summit, so to speak. A great time. And, you know, then I got the phone call. Why aren't you here? <laughs> aren't you coming here? I said, okay, I'll design the show, but I can't be there to run it. And I said, I've signed this contract for three years. So yeah. I got sort of stuck that's you know you and i both have had that kind of happen here you know? <laughs> yes you know i i had a similar thing where you know i was i mean i i don't even know if you know this howard you know you know after the long hiatus uh you know with neil's personal challenges and stuff yeah. you know when they were getting ready to come back for that first tour i mean it, I, I was approached about doing it of course and had i mean i had designed up a complete 5.1 surround system for for concert sound to be able to do that and ended up, you know, kind of getting bought out by Petty to, to do that tour and to not, not to go, you know, and it was, man, I'm telling you, it was, I was emotionally wrecked from that. I, it was just heartbreaking to have to step back, but I was kind of in the same boat you were, you know, where the, the, the future of the band was really uncertain. 
And, you know, we had gone a period of years there without anything. And I mean, who knew whether Rush was going to make it back? No, they never. And I mean, I mean, I had to do it. I I mean, it was just one of those financial decisions where it's like, no, I I can't turn this Mm -hmm. down. I mean, it changed the trajectory of my, my financial life by not being able to do that. And I think in my heart of hearts, I I mean, I gave Rush every challenge or every chance to match that offer. And I I knew they weren't going to do it. It's just not in their DNA to do that, you know? It was heartbreaking. How long were they down for between Test for Echo and and Vapor Trails? Was it like five years? It was a long time. At least. At least that. Yeah. To the point where no one knew if they were going to come back, right? That's why I took a contract, you know? Yeah. And uh, that was was crazy because, you know, no one knew. Because Neil disappeared, no, I, right? He jumped on his motorcycle and, and, and drove yeah. like 100,000 miles or something ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did. And, and Well, you know, I mean, an interesting little backstory to all that, you know, uh, I'm going to be on another podcast talking about this very thing here coming up in a few weeks. You know, that the record different stages came out of that period there, right? And those recordings, I mean, at the time, you know, we were recording on Test for Echo. I mean, we the recordings weren't taken very seriously. I, I, at the time, I, was, I had kind of made the offer to, you know, if they would materials, et cetera, just so they could have them in their archive. But ultimately, that wasn't the goal. For me, it was developing virtual sound check. You know, I was still working on that workflow pretty intensely during that time. And technically, I mean, it was a failure, technically. I mean, out of... 60 or 70 shows we tried to record i think we only got about 15 or 16 head to toe but even when that was all done we didn't really think much of it i mean it was like okay i'll just put these in the archive and then neil goes through that horrific piece of you know personal life there and all of a sudden the realization was oh my gosh those might be the very last rush recordings ever you know i mean we got to do something with those you know i mean the that the mindset changed completely there. Even the dogs are upset about it. <laughs> so, so different stages is, is the test for echo tour essentially. Well, it was, it was a combination of a few, uh, you know, recordings, but primarily it was from the test for echo tour. And I love the test for echo tour. Cause I actually got to put my laser in my radar dishes, which I put on. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Uh, I think that was maybe the most challenging tour for me. Yeah. Test for Echo. In what way? You know, we, we had just come through a lot of stuff and not negative stuff, but you know, you just grow and grow and grow over time, you know, things you're trying and you know, trying to improve things, trying to do things better and stuff. And I, I, I actually think my PA design took a little bit of a step backwards on that tour. I, we I, honestly, it was a situation where we were just putting up too much BA, honestly. Uh, and, you know, there were just certain things that suffered from it. Some of the mic choices we made right. at that point, thinking it was going to be better. You know, in hindsight, of course, it's 2020, but you kind of go, yeah, I wish I had, I wish I had a chance to do that over again. You know, could do that a little yeah, better. Yeah, because that's probably. pre-line array, I mean, right? I mean, that, was, that wasn't. No, it was, this was pre-line array. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the line array was not happening yet. So you had a And big... kind of with that mindset, I mean, it's not a regret, but it's one of my things that I really, really wish I would have had a chance to do. I wish I could have had the chance to do Rush on a digital console and through line source. I, I, man, I look back on that and just go, I'm sorry, folks. I would have crushed that. I would have absolutely crushed that. Come on. I, I can't, I can't remember how many times I would be mixing other acts on these, 
these PA systems and these consoles just thinking, geez, if I would have had this when I was doing Rush, my goodness. <laughs> well, it's pretty good. Not bad, not bad. <clears throat> so what's then, the, so what do you think the, what's the legacy for Rush in your, in your minds, guys? Hmm. Howard, I'll give you the last word on that one. I, would, I think it only grows. I think it only grows from here. I, the, I mean, there's just going to be one of those bands. The more people dig in and listen to them, the more they're going to appreciate them. You know, they're not. You know, their legacy will live on for for quite a while. And you know, there there'll be things being released. I mean, when they sold their publishing, the company is going to endlessly be releasing things just to yeah. recoup the money they laid out for it. So you'll always have something there. And um, as we all know, Rush will never exist again. Um, but Alex and Ged will be around doing, you know, playing music. And they'll get back. They're already back at it. Oh, they are. Yeah. yeah there's, yeah. you know, they're just playing around at the moment. But, uh, you know, Alex has a solo thing that he's, he's done. And if you can go online, you can listen to it. It sounds like a movie soundtrack, basically. <laughs> and, um, you know, Ged's going to get back at it. I was just with him. His, his mother had passed away this week. And um, it was very sad because yeah. we all That's loved right. her. And, you know, I knew her so well. And, you know, Ged was very, very, um, you know, distraught. Mm, can imagine. Um, I had a good time going over there and you know i was lucky that he invited me to come over and hang with the family which was great and uh remember some good times and we had some laughs and we had some smiles and uh, he was in good spirits actually i think it's good as much hear. as he had that strain on his head from losing his mom i mean she was such a nice woman too but he's very very impactful in his life too right i mean they were you know it's just all of this just makes you do a lot of thinking, you know, you know, you see a lot of people who, you know, both young and old pass away. And the closer you are to these people, the more thinking you do and you can't yeah. dwell on it. You know, most, yeah. you know, most professionals will say, forget about it, move on, which you have to do because otherwise you'll just take yourself down. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so when you when you say they're messing around, are they messing around together, or do you think they'll play together again, or do you think I they'll think just they they're do doing things around. separately? Yeah, I th no, I think that both. I think they'll play separately and together. You know, just give them time. I mean, Alex didn't play for the longest time. He was, you know, when Neil passed away, they just they did nothing, right? They weren't interested. I understand. Yeah. So, and I, you know, I don't know about you, but I totally understand it. I was yeah. like, why would? Why would they want to go back to that? I mean, it's just going to dredge up every painful memory yeah. imaginable, you know, as they, that's why, I, I mean, I totally got it. It's, it's why I say, you know, the future for them was really uncertain at that point. Who would, who would think? And even moving forward now, it won't be rushed. It'll be something different, yeah. but it will be great. I mean, great. I would, I would relish the opportunity to work with them again. I, I would jump at it. I would drop whatever I'm doing to do it. With the digital console. With the digital me too <laughs> you know i'll say this on a on a more you know upbeat note a more positive note i think the one of the legacies that's going to grow over time is alex's legacy i i, I mean i I've, I've said this before and i stand by it 100 he is the most underrated guitar player 
in terms of influence and the content that he has put out in the history of rock. Absolutely. The, the most underrated guy. Yeah, not just his solos too. I mean, he's just 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 his style and just just everything. Just, or, you know. I mean, the palette of sounds, yeah. the parts. Yeah. I, I mean, I you know, you can judge a lot of guitar players by their solos. I mean, you can sing every Alex Lifesing solo. I, they're memorable, yeah. you know. They're they're. I mean, I just I just think he's the most underrated uh, guy. I have yeah, to chime in on that the one. limelight. Solo. I, I mean, you know, I grew up listening to Rush from really really young age and i think alex was the first guitar player that i ever listened to i have to throw jeff back in there as well but with emotion you know <laughs> no, no, no 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 but I'm, I'm just i'm just i'm just going back to just going back from the standpoint of the song actually having an emotional feeling you know that was that wasn't aggressive you know because a lot of rock and a lot of kiss that i was listening to and stuff is like yeah but that was like wow it's a soft and bendy and it was sad and melodic and there's just you know, all kinds of different emotions going on in there that just made you really pay attention and you know well you know and rush made this really cool transition in their career right where in the beginning i mean it was heavy it was hard i mean it was heavy hard rock it was on the edge and they made that transition to being more cerebral, you know, both musically and lyrically. I mean, they made that jump and, mm. and, and staying progressive along the way. Very much so. Very much so. I, and even if you pick apart their music musically and investigate it from its structure, it's genius. It really is. I mean, it's, it's <clears throat> genius. There's nothing like it. I, I said it in one of the blogs I wrote rush is a singularity. There's never been anything like it. I'm not sure there's ever going to be anything like it again. You know, they're one of those pieces of music that happen when you think, where did that come from? And you can't identify it by listening to it. Even when they did the cover thing, the cover album where they were talking about their influences and stuff. I thought that was fascinating because here you hear all these things that are claiming to be their influences or they're claiming to be influences, yet you don't hear any of it in their music. Yeah, I, it was just amazing to me. I was just like, man, they are just such a singular event, you know. Mm, I and I also think that when they brought Nick Rosenkowski as a producer into the picture, he energized them because their Time Machine album and R40, they had some songs on there that were just insane, you know, just intense and heavy, you know. And he brought that youth back into the band. Wow. Yeah. Well, here I'm holding my hand. Nobody, nobody obviously listening can see this, but this is a, I pulled this out of a tour book. This is a handwritten set list that I wrote along watching the show. It's from the moving pictures show that I actually had a pen and paper and I wrote the set list out as they played. So going back to moving pictures, Howard, what did yes. they open up with? What was their opening song? Oh, now you're taxing my brain. Their opening song, I think it hmm, was a Tom Sawyer. Uh, Spirit of Radio. Spirit of Radio, right? <laughs> Spirit of Radio. It was a twenty-song set list, and yeah. it's intense. There's a lot of playing in there. Uh, did Did they ever do La Vila and YYZ in the same show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. I was say, those those are you know. Not many people can play that well, once. It, never mind both of them at the same time. I mean, that, that's the thing. You got to just tip your hat to i mean especially with neil i mean how physical that show was i mean man i mean 
I mean, you got a drummer play Tom Sawyer once. They'd be worn out for three songs, you know. I mean, he would do this for two hours a night. After riding he was, 100 he was miles just a beast. Yeah. yeah, just a beast. Crazy. Mentally and physically, you know. That was the thing. He's definitely a renaissance man. No, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, gentlemen, I appreciate you doing this, man. This has been super fun. You know, geeking out on Rush. I mean, come on. I mean, well, it's been super fun for me because I haven't spoken to Hearns and I don't know how I know. I haven't seen Robert since the last trick. Well, what's the it's what was Robert's nickname? Scoby. I was Scobie. just always Scoby. It yeah. came from the Def Leppard guys. They, they're the ones that gave okay, me that. That's, that's, came right over with me. That's obvious and simple, you know. <laughs> just like me. <laughs> there you go. Scoby's <laughs> a simple man. Uh, well, great guys. I appreciate you coming on a second time for me. You know, um, I loved having you on. Uh, Matt, thank you, Chris. Matt, what do you got for the guys? Well, all I got to say is, you know, Rush being such being such a fan and, and having kind of like a, a behind the scene look and kind of humanizing it. Right. Because as, as a fan, you know, you kind of put them up on that stage and, and, you know, you didn't knock them down at all, you know, and, and, you know, just the, the, the level of admiration that you have for them and uh, you know, it's just heartwarming. It's great. It's fantastic. Now I'm going to go, I have all the original vinyl yeah. and I'm going to go listen to it all. Hey. Yeah. I'm, I, gotta, I might put some gotta, on when I'm done here as well. I, I might just need to throw some I, I got to put it home. Yeah. Listen to- Listen to, uh, to listen to Witch Hunt. Oh man, come on! Yeah, because you could hear you, you could hear Neil in the background yelling, "Kill her!" <laughs> you got it. I'm gonna listen to Witch Hunt. <laughs> oh, Thank you guys. I, well, I, I listen. I listened to uh, Farewell to Kings before before the broadcast as a little warm up, and I listened to Hemispheres a couple days ago. So, yeah. getting in, getting the headspace together. Yeah, I mean, for people sure. can't see this, sure. but I'll show so it to fun. you guys. So good. Chris, a couple of days ago, sent me this picture. As, so <laughs> nice. You know, got it, got the vinyl out and set it up. That's and, awesome. Yeah, it's a nice. Picture. Yeah, yeah, to knock it down, like I said. All right, gentlemen, I wish you the best of luck. 2021 is moving along. We're all working Goodness. soon, man. We're all working soon. Can't wait. Burns, I love you, brother. Yeah, love you too, bro. Take care. Maybe yeah, we can get on a bus together and have screwdrivers. How fun! Oh, Come on, yes, for <laughs> breakfast, of course. Is. <laughs> well, hopefully sooner than later, Chris. I'm looking yeah, forward. Yeah, to yeah. It. Well, we got stuff to talk about, Howard. You know we do. I know. All right, that's it. I I get it. Yeah, you guys. Just I'll, I'll give you a call, Robert. You need to do. I'll go back to <laughs> mopping the floor we'll over the, here. Yeah, the bike in the background okay. on the trainer. We'll, we'll, I'll, I'll, yeah, yeah. So. There we go. Yeah. Yes, we'll talk about that. Uh, Howard, yes. he doesn't know that we were going to talk about him. He doesn't know that. So. <laughs> right. I, actually, I knew I, gotta, I knew I you were going to go talk about him. I knew. Oh, Robert Howard, thank you so much. All right, much. gentlemen. It's all good. Good right. seeing you, Robert. Guys, thanks so much. Take care. Pleasure you, and an Chris. honor. Honestly, thank you. See you, guys. See you, Hearn. See you, man.